Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 11. And this morning we'll be looking at the first four verses. If there are any who would like to take your children to the nursery during the sermon time, there'll be somebody back there to meet you. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. As we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, we come now to this very familiar prayer you've heard many times, I'm sure. We're going to stop and we're actually going to take it a little slower. And we're going to look at each one of the petitions that are given here, because each one of these petitions give us a priority of the kingdom of God. And when we pray, we want to pray kingdom prayers. We want to pray as God would have us pray. And he gives us the Lord's Prayer to guide us in how to pray. I do want to point out that as we read through that, I'm sure you noticed that this is not the familiar version that we typically use in our liturgy. And when we worship on Sunday mornings, the much more uh, well-known version of this prayer is over in Luke, or in Matthew. And Matthew gives it as part of the Sermon on the Mount. And we believe that this is actually two different teachings, that the Sermon on the Mount was relatively early in Jesus' ministry. Here later, someone asks him about prayer, and he gives essentially the same prayer. But it's not exactly the same, which I think in and of itself, points to the fact that we don't always have to say it the same way. Jesus didn't even teach it the same way when he repeated it. Just to point out what the differences are, they're basically, there's some slight differences in wording, but essentially there's three differences between this giving of the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11 and the one that Matthew gives. First of all, when we say, your kingdom come, in Matthew's version, it's followed by, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, interestingly, we'll see how this is handled because I'm not preaching that text, but uh, when it's in the next couple of weeks as we look at that, that that is uh, probably a restatement. Your kingdom come is probably restated in the second statement, and so maybe that's why Jesus left it off in the second, uh, in, in his, in uh, the second time he gave this prayer. The next difference is when we say, lead us not into temptation, in Luke's version, Matthew adds the phrase that we're familiar with, but deliver us from the evil one. And then I'm sure you noticed that the familiar ending, where we say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, that is actually not included here. But interestingly, the earliest manuscripts do not include it in Matthew's version either. That's something that most scholars believe was added later. So... The main two differences are those first two. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as a heaven. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Essentially, two prayers, two petitions, but meaning the same thing. 
Well, as we come to this at the beginning of Luke chapter 11, I think it's significant as we looked at the order in which Luke records the life of Jesus. He doesn't always follow a, a, a strict chronology. And sometimes he'll put things together to make a point. And it seems like he's done this here too because last time we looked at Luke at the end of chapter 10, we saw that Jesus visited the home of Martha and Mary. And as he was teaching in Martha and Mary's home, he made the point that Mary had chosen the better thing by sitting at the feet of Jesus to listen to his word. So I think it's, it's significant that Jesus teaches that we need to be sitting at his feet, listening to his word, but then the next thing that Luke records is that we need to be talking to the Lord as well. So you have that two-way communication that the Lord wants us to have in our relationship with him. It's interesting that a few years ago, Crossway Publishing did a pretty large survey of 14,000 professing Christians. And one of the questions they asked in this survey was they gave them a scale of 1 to 10, one being un totally unsatisfied, 10 being very satisfied, and then asked them to measure their satisfaction with prayer, their prayer life. The results of that survey are that only 2% of 14,000 Christians, only 2% said they were very satisfied with their prayer life. 70% of those surveyed rated their prayer life as less than satisfactory, in other words, a four or lower. I think that's significant, and I think it fits our experience. Is that not true, as we talk among Christians, that that's one thing that mostly we agree on, is that our prayer life is not what it should be. We do not pray as often, we do not pray as fervently, we do not pray as well as we should. But that's something that we need to continually address then. Keep going back to Scripture, keep going back to the Holy Spirit to teach us what Jesus taught us about prayer. It says, in this case, a disciple approached Jesus and asked him to teach him to pray as he prayed. You can imagine what it would be like living day and night with the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God. And we've seen many examples. As a matter of fact, Luke seems to emphasize the prayer life of Jesus. And so there's so many examples of how vibrant, how essential Jesus viewed prayer, how passionately he communicated with his Father, God the Son, communicating with God the Father throughout his earthly ministry. Prayer was extremely important to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so his disciples saw this. They witnessed. They saw what was different about his prayer life compared to their own. And so one of the disciples says, please, Lord, teach us how to pray. You can identify with that, can't you? Have you not asked that in prayer yourself? Lord, teach me to pray. I don't pray as I should, please. I think it's the best prayer is to say, Lord, teach me how to do this the right way the way that will feed my faith, the way that will strengthen my, my walk with Christ, the way that will enable me to serve in this world. It's interesting that Jesus, in answer to that request, it's interesting that he does not teach a 45-minute lesson on technique and prayer. That might be what our tendency might be in the church. We might just say, okay, come to Sunday school or go to this Bible study where they're studying prayer. And we talk about technique, but that's not what he does. Instead, he gives an example. He gives a model for prayer. It's actually really short. You can pray the Lord's Prayer in 10, 15, 15 seconds, depending on how quickly you talk. It's a very short prayer. And it is good that we say it corporately. It's good that we say it together as part of our worship. I think that's one thing it's intended for. The, the, the pronouns in it are 
plural. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so it's meant to be shared together and prayed together corporately. But I don't think that's the primary purpose. The primary purpose is a, is a teaching tool. Because prayer is relational, it's not a ritual. Prayer is relational, it's not a ritual. Other religions will prescribe rote prayers for their adherents so that they can say them like mantras, they can recite them over and over using the exact words, trying to do so for religious credit. But that's not what prayer is in the true religion, the one that has been revealed to us by God. Prayer is a means by which we draw near to him. We listen to him through his word and we talk to him through prayer. And what a privilege it is. If prayer was only a religious duty and Jesus only prescribed this prayer, if we were to look at it that way, like other religions look at it, and Jesus said, okay, here's a prayer for you. Pray this, pray this often, pray it well. If that's what it was about, was just fulfilling a religious duty, then we could satisfy our daily quota for prayer in about 10 to 15 seconds. Obviously, that's not what the Lord intended. When I was a child, I was taught rote prayers. You probably were too. In my generation, there were two that seemed like all of my friends that went to church learned two rote prayers. The first one was, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for this food. That's how I said it, because it should rhyme, right? <laughs> or, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. You know, we had these rote prayers, and our parents did that because they wanted to teach us to pray, but they shouldn't have stopped there. My parents shouldn't have stopped there, they did. They should have taught me how to use the Lord's Prayer and use the instructions of Scripture to pray from the heart, to pray sincerely, to open up my life, to open up my life to him, to his guidance, to really relate to a very personal God who loves me. So we have this model prayer. It's an example to us. And what it really is, is like a checkpoint. It's something that we should always be measuring our daily prayers by to say, do my prayers reflect the prayers of my Lord Jesus Christ? Do I pray like Jesus prayed? He, he basically gave him this gift and he said, if you can pray the petitions that are listed in this prayer, if you can pray this sincerely from the heart, yes, you could actually pray a meaningful powerful prayer in 10 to 15 seconds. You could actually do it and cover all the basic areas of kingdom prayer. But what he wants us to do is to have those priorities reflected in those petitions. When uh, in the days of Jesus and the disciples, when they wanted to build a wall, they wanted to make sure that the wall was vertical, that it was perfectly vertical, they would take a plumb line. And a plumb line in that day, and I think to some degree still today, is, is a string with a, with a weight on the bottom that would, would hang straight up and down. You'd put it up next to the wall, and if it matched parallel to the wall, you knew your wall was straight. And so really what Jesus is saying is, here's a plumb line for your prayer life. Here's something to measure your prayer life by to see if it reflects the heart of God. And notice what he does in the beginning of this prayer, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. It's just the first couple of verses. As we look at the beginning of the prayer, the first thing he tells us to do is make sure you're looking up when you pray. Not maybe literally, although it may be helpful to look up. It's, we tend to bow our heads to pray, but 
In early church, if you have pictures of people praying in the early church, often they had their hands out and they're looking up to heaven when they pray. The point is, in your heart, look up to the throne of God. That's the first thing that Jesus tells us. He makes sure what we, that we know what the Lord would have to be the focus of our prayer. You got to begin by acknowledging, taking to heart, who you're talking to. Remember, when Moses stood before the burning bush, and he thought the burning bush was just this weird supernatural thing at first, and he realized that in the burning bush, God was talking to him. The creator, the one who created him, this judge, was talking to him. And you know what Moses wanted to know? One of the first things he wanted to know? Who should I say sent me? What is your name? He wanted to know this creator. He wanted to know this God. And a person says, tell me what I should call you. It's important we recognize who we're talking to. It's important that we know who we're talking to. When I get a phone call, a lot of times I'll pick up the phone and on the other end, I'll say hello and the other person will say, is Mr. Kyle there? And I'll say, you're a salesman, aren't you? You don't know me. If you knew me, even though my name is spelled as though you should pronounce it Kyle, that's not how you pronounce it. It's actually Kiel. But that tells me he doesn't know me because he doesn't know my name. So what is the title by which we are to approach the creator and the judge of the universe? Jesus says, if you're my disciple, you call upon him as father. If you're my disciple, you call upon him as father. Jesus begins the model prayer with that simple title. And that doesn't sound shocking to us. But in the first century, to a Jewish person in the first century, that was shocking. That Jesus should tell his disciples to begin your prayer by calling upon God, the creator of the universe, as Father. The Jews were very careful about how they used the name of God. They would not speak the name of Yahweh. And they never called upon the creator as their father. You will not find any example of that in the Old Testament. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, God is given the title Father only 14 times in the entire, six, the entire uh, books of the Old Testament. He's only called Father 14 times, and only one of those 14 times is it in the context of a prayer. But every time of those 14 times that, that God is called Father, he's called the Father of the nation, not of an individual. In other words, kind of a distant sense in that he, he's like we will talk about George Washington as the father of our country. You know, that God is called the father of Israel in that sense. But never do you have an incident of even Moses or Abraham, anybody calling upon God as their personal father in a personal relational way. But Jesus, in the four gospels, Jesus calls upon God his, as his father, his personal father father 60 times 60 times the greek word that is written in the, in the new testament gospels is pater that's what that's how they translated what jesus said when he addressed his father particularly how he addressed his father in prayer but jesus didn't speak greek his main language was aramaic and so when he said father he said the word abba and I'm sure you've heard about the word Abba in Aramaic. It was the word that 
children used for their father at home. Jesus might have called Joseph, even though Joseph was his adopted, his stepfather, so to speak, he would have called Joseph probably Abba in Aramaic. My father. It, was a, it reflected both a personal relationship and intimacy, but also reverence and respect for the father, the head of the household. It was affectionate. It expressed intimacy. It expressed close relationship along with reverence. Some commentators say, you know, I'm sure you've heard it, that a good way to translate it would be daddy. And it's, you could, I think you could translate it daddy. But some commentators back off from that and say probably something more like dearest father. Something which I didn't say that to my dad. But I think, you know, that, that gets at the idea that it's not something that in any way takes away from his reverence, which we'll talk, away, talk about in a moment. But there's no example in the first century, either from the New Testament or from early church writings, there's, from, from Jewish writings, not early church, but from Jewish writings, there's no example of a Jewish person calling upon God as Abba. That was too personal to think of God in that way in the first century Jewish religion. But think about it. This is what Derek Thomas says. Derek Thomas says, to be able to call God Father is what makes the message of the New Testament That's what the message of the New Testament is principally about. The ability to call upon God, our creator and our judge, as father is what the New Testament is about. It's what the gospel is about. The gospel is Christ, Jesus Christ, coming to earth to provide a way for us to be adopted into God's family and to have the great privilege of calling upon our creator and our judge as father. That's what the gospel is about. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, we read, it, was, it says read to us earlier. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are, by grace, through faith, in the work of Christ. You see, the Bible is, we call it progressive revelation. God saves his people from the beginning of scripture, but the way in which he saves his people, the details of salvation, the details of the plan of redemption are only revealed gradually and progressively through the course of the books of the Bible as we work our way towards the coming of Christ and the fullness of the new covenant in the New Testament. And it basically very, very carefully and very progressively reveals what the gospel is and the fatherhood of God and the sonship of God's people, the privilege of sonship, the privilege of being children of God is not really revealed in any clear way until the coming of Christ because it's the coming of Christ that makes it possible. In Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 to 6, this is what Paul's saying. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God sent his son to die for us so that we can cry out to our creator as Abba, dearest Father. Do you know the only prayer that Jesus prays said about the 60 times and the many, many times in which he called upon God as his father? The only time in which Jesus prayed that he didn't address God as his father, do you know what the only time was? When he hung on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's when he was 
bearing upon himself all the guilt and condemnation that you and I deserve. He became sin on the cross for us. My sins, your sins, if you're a believer in Christ, were transferred to Christ on the cross. And as he died on the cross, God the Father turned his back upon him because that's what we deserve for eternity. And in the midst of being abandoned by God, because that's what condemnation results in, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when the debt was fully paid on the cross, one of the last things he cried out was, it is finished. Which means the debt was paid. Redemption is accomplished. And having paid the debt, he prayed his last prayer as he died. And what did he say? My father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because he was now having accomplished our salvation, he is now received into the arms of his father and he calls him my father. And having done that, having then been raised from the dead, he gives us the privilege of being adopted as God's children and addressing our creator and judge as our loving father who accepts us as fully as he accepts Jesus Christ because we wear the robes of Christ's righteousness and our sin has been put as far away as east is from west. John chapter 1, verse 12. To all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so you begin your prayer. Even if you don't actually use the title, even if you use one of the other many great and glorious titles that you could use biblically for God, if in your heart you're still coming to him as father through faith in Christ, then it's a dialogue with someone who has not only created your physical being, but has given you a new heart and a new spirit, who has given you a new birth in Christ, and he has adopted you as his child. And so the Westminster, Short, Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is part of our doctrinal standards of our church, says in question number 100, that the preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is, Our Father, which art in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with holy reverence and confidence as children to a father, able and ready to help us. You see, we need to understand that we're coming to our Father, our Heavenly Father, so that we can give to Him the other petitions of the Lord's Prayer, so that we can ask for His provision, so that we can ask for His pardon, so that we can ask for His protection. Provision, pardon, and protection come to the children of God, and we become children of God by grace. And so when we pray, we always have that consciousness, we're talking to our Heavenly Father, that's what Luke will actually get into. In a few weeks, we're going to be looking at this part of the passage. If you go down to verse 11, he shows you why it's important to be understanding that when you pray, you're talking to your father. Listen to what he says. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see what he's saying? If you understand God to be your father, then you know that no matter how he answers your prayer, it's always for your good. It's always what's best for you because that's what a good father does. But he also allows for the fact that some fathers are not good. Some earthly fathers are actually evil. Some earthly fathers are abusive. Some earthly fathers are very bad examples of our heavenly father. And maybe you had a father like that. 
Maybe when you think of father, that's the image you get as a, as a father who was wicked, a father who was abusive, a father who did not fulfill what was required by God's word for what a father should be. But your hope is, is that your earthly father is not the plumb line of fatherhood. That's, that's how we tend to look at our fathers, that we measure what fatherhood looks like by our own fathers. But your earthly father is not the plumb line for fatherhood. God, your heavenly father, is the plumb line for fatherhood. And if your father fell far short of that, then that father has the power to heal you the power to restore you, the power to teach you to trust a father again, not your earthly father, but him as your ultimate father. He can heal. He can teach you to trust. And that brings me to the other aspect of this beginning, how the Lord tells us to begin our prayers. Not only do we come to our father, but we do have a tendency, especially in this culture. I think about how this culture in its television shows, its movies, in its media, in so many ways, it has denigrated the position of father in the family. When you think of the fathers, the famous fathers in our popular culture, they tend to be buffoons, they tend to be clueless, they tend to be ineffective. And I think it's an intentional attempt to try to tear down what God intended to be a reflection of his own glory and good. And so when you call upon God as father, remember that you come to a holy God. We pray to a holy God. As the shorter catechism said, the Lord's Prayer teaches us to draw near not only with confidence, but also with all holy reverence. And it's not, a, it's not an accident that as fatherhood is torn down, so is the idea of a God being torn down in our culture. But the Lord's Prayer teaches us to come with a holy reverence. Your prayers should start with worship. Don't jump into your list of needs and wants. Start with worship. When you're a new Christian, you might have been taught that acronym of ACTS, ACTS. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That's what's right about it. That's what's like the Lord's Prayer about that, that, that acronym is that you start with adoration. You come before, yes, your Father, but your Holy Father. The word hallow is an old time word. It's a King James word. And you'll notice that the new translations, we read it in the ESV or the, you look at the NIV, they tend to keep the word hallow there because our English words just aren't sufficient to communicate the whole idea of what it means to hallow. It really comes from the word for holy. It means when you pray, hallowed be your name, you're saying, Lord, may your name be regarded as holy. And by holy, we, it, the word holy, as you know, combines two ideas. The idea of purity and perfection and, and all that is opposed to the, anything that is false or evil. It's, you know, holy means that, purity and perfection, but it also means transcendence, being totally other, being something not like us, something far above us. And it combines that idea into the idea. That's what reverence is, is recognizing the holiness of God. And so when we say, hallowed be your name, we're saying, Lord, may your name be regarded as holy in my life. May your name be regarded as holy in my family. May your name be regarded as holy in my community, in my workplace, in my country, in, my, in the world. May your name be regarded as holy. That's what we're asking for. 
You know, God's holiness is emphasized in the Old Testament. The blood sacrifices and the priests and the cleansing rituals and the dietary laws and the, the holy places in the temple. Sometimes the problem with that is when Christ came, he did away with all those outward symbols and all those outward images because he brought the reality of it. But sometimes we lose sight of the fact that God doesn't change. God isn't more holy in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. Read the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation emphasizes the holiness of God just as much as any Old Testament book does. God is still holy. Matter of fact, in the words of Isaiah, he is holy, holy, holy. And it mentions his name. It says, God's name. How would be your name? In Scripture, the name of God is a revelation of who he is. And so when you say, may your name be holy, you're talking about everything that's revealed to us in creation, in his word, in any way in which God has revealed himself to us, that makes up his name. His name represents all of that. And so you'll read and say Psalm 20 and verse 7, it says, may uh, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That means we trust in all who God has revealed himself to be. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Or Psalm 34, verse 3, it says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. One very small way that I do this, and I just know that every day I need to be reminded to hallow the name of the Lord in my prayers and in the way I live. And I, I'm just going to give this as a suggestion. that If this is help you to, helpful to you, great. If it's not, forget it. And it's, I don't ever want it to be considered a legalistic thing. But you remember the old Bible translations, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, they would capitalize the pronouns that referred to God. And I understand why they stopped doing that, especially with the internet and having to put this out all over the place. It just got too hard to do that with the software and everything. So you, don't, you rarely see it anymore, where the pronouns, he, him, his, that refer to God, it's rare to see it capitalized anymore. But because I need that reminder every day, every time I type it, every time I write it, I take the time to go back and change the first letter and make it capitalized. Now, that could be a legalistic thing, but for me, it's not. It's just a continual reminder that I want to hallow the name of God. I want to treat his name as holy because his name represents all of who he is. Hallowed be your name. What it means is say, Lord, show your glory. Show your glory through my life. Show your glory through my family. Show your glory through my church. Show your glory in the world. Let the world see your glory. I mean, one of the greatest prayers in Scripture is when Moses was at the top of the mountain and he said, Lord, show me your glory. That should be the deepest, most profound, most passionate request of any believer. Lord, show me your glory. And what this prayer says, hallowed be your name. Let the world see your glory and let it begin by being shown through me. Hallowed be your name. There's specific ways. Each one of these prayer requests, each one of these petitions should be basically just a, a, an instigator, something to get you thinking about ways in which this could be applied in your life, in your family, and in your world. And so when you say, Lord, hallowed be your name, you could add to that, elaborate upon it in your prayer by saying, may your name in my presence, where I am, may your name not be used as a curse word. May it not even be used thoughtlessly. 
May your name, when it is used in my life and the people around me in my church, when your name is spoken, may it be done with reverence. May your name be hallowed. Another prayer request could be, Lord, don't allow false teachers to use your name to spread falsehood. Don't let your false teachers use your name to spread heresy. Another example, may the church of Jesus Christ not bring shame to the name of Jesus Christ by the way that it expresses itself in the public sector, by the way in which it responds to the needs of the community. May it not bring shame to your name. May your name be glorified in the ministry and the preaching and the good deeds that your church does. May those who don't know your name come to know your name and see your glory and all that it represents. These are just examples of ways that you can elaborate upon that one request. Lord, Father, hallowed be your name. So in closing, the Lord's Prayer teaches us not to begin our prayers with a laundry list of deeds and wants. We all tend to do that, don't we? We've got this limited amount of time to prayer, so we're just going to jump quickly into our list of needs and wants. Stop and recognize who you're talking to. Recognize the blood that was shed to purchase the relationship that you have by grace, having been adopted as a child of God. And then begin your petitions by saying, may your name be displayed as holy, as pure, as transcendent before the world. Your prayers reflect, reflect your theology. And your theology, as you grow as a Christian, must become more and more God-centered. And that's really what this prayer teaches. Approach God as your Father, confidently, secure in that relationship because of what Christ has done, not based on anything you have done. And then pray with reverence because the purpose of your prayer, let alone anything that flows out of your prayer, should be to glorify God. Phil Riken made this comment, and I'll close with this. He said, the Lord's Prayer moves from God's glory to our good. The direction of the Lord's Prayer is that it moves from God's glory to our good. All our prayers should reflect that. Let's pray. Father, I want to begin by giving you praise. Praise because you are such a good God, a merciful God, a loving, a forgiving God who has rescued us from being under your condemnation and you paid the price that we couldn't pay by sending your son to die in our place. Thank you, Lord, for raising him from the dead. Thank you for raising us with him to new life. Thank you that you not only gave us new life and eternal life, but you gave us sonship. You made us children of God. You adopted us by your grace. We're so thankful for what you have given. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us not only the words to say, but the right attitude and the right focus in our prayer. We look forward to what you have to teach us in these coming weeks as we dig deeper into this prayer that our Lord taught us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.